0: This is the Gospel City Church Podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. So we've all prayed for joy. Uh, I think if you think about it, all of our prayers are usually about this aspect of joy, right? It's usually about this idea that if I pray for this thing, and I get this thing, then this thing will give me joy, right? And so that's often how most of our prayers are. Our prayers are uh, When we wake up in the morning, we're praying for the day, and usually uh, that, that prayer is filled with, God, give me these things, often, usually for ourselves, to give us joy. And so if you think about it, if most of our prayers are for joy in one way or another, um, how come our prayers don't look like this man's prayer, where our prayers and his prayers are so different, right? This is a man full of joy. I mean, he, he says the word sing, you know, three times in the beginning. Who sings? Dramatic people. Yes, they sing. <laughs> but also those who are just full of joy. They want to uh, sing. There's something within their hearts. They want to express. And the psalms uh, were the songbook for the Israelites. It's what they would sing. And so as they would sing this, they would actually start to manifest this heart of joy. And so as we read through this psalm and study it, the heart of it is not just for you to understand how to get joy. My hope and prayer by God's grace is that you would actually taste and experience his joy uh, through our time together. And what we see here in the beginning is the problem of earthly joy. That There's a problem with our understanding of joy. Tell your neighbor that there's a problem with our understanding of joy. There's a problem. And if you don't see this problem... You will continue to pray, but worse, you'll continue to hope for things that don't give you joy. And so in verse 1, the problem. First, we see what he does well, right? He can't stop singing. He tells others to sing. He invites others to sing, right? Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth think about how how grand that is for all the earth to sing i'm sure you've been to a concert i'm sure you've been to some sort of arena where it might have been for sports or whatever and it's when the it's the idea of the whole crowd you know applauding for something right it's it's that whole, it's, a, it's that everyone there in the arena is singing that same same song a song it's that idea of singing to the lord everyone, all the earth, but it says something very specific, sing to the Lord a new song, right? Sing to the Lord a new song. It's not literally new song, meaning every time you come together, you have to sing a new, com- newly composed song. It's the idea of, of that song with those truths that's understood in new ways. It's fresh. It's deep. That's the idea. It's these deeper, more intimate understanding of God. Sing to the Lord, bless His name, uh, tell His salvation from day to day. Not just speaking of every day, not just speaking of eternity, uh, but but speaking of the idea of every day for all eternity. That's the idea. So it starts off very grand, declares glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. The idea of glory is literally weight, right? It's this idea that. Um, it's this idea of God's weight, His splendor, His majesty made manifest. And once you start to understand that, all other gods tremble. Verse four: uh, The great, and for great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, for He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are what? Worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. And now you're getting a glimpse into why this this man is so full of joy. Because it's in these words, it's in these verses, we see something that's worth our joy, worth our time, worth our worship, and something else else that is not. It's worthless. The idea of glory is mentioned right? In verse 3. And then in verse 4, people fear when they see how great He is, His glory compared to all others. And then we start to see the stark contrast of God being glorious and all other things being worthless. Uh, That word uh, in the Hebrew, it's very uh, clear. It's a play on words. The word gods and the word idols, worthless idols, is, is very close together. One is Elohim, God, or gods, and worthless idols, Elihim. right? It's very close together. It's a play on words. It's helping us see that though two things look alike, sound alike, seems like it's the same, but at the end of the day, the picture is one is worthwhile, the other is not. One is worthy, the other is worthless and that's when you start to see why this man is so full of joy he has understood all the things that he has lived for has been worthless and everything that he lives for now is worthwhile it's worthy it's worthy of his time and that's the picture right Uh, the picture is God is worthy all idols are worthless An idol is simply an image of a God, an image of God created by man, right? Trying to manifest something, create something, something that we would worship. And the idea is what he is saying here, it's not about whether you worship or not. He's actually saying, what do you worship? Because it's assumed you will worship something. So he's saying, because you will worship something. Worship the one that is worthwhile. And once you start to understand that idea of God being supreme and everything else being worthless, right, right? Paltry compared to God and His goodness, that's when you start to realize, oh, this is the key, right? This is the problem of our worship. We pursue all these worthless things, and there is a God worthy of worship. That's what Romans 1 says. Romans 1, 22 to 23 it says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what does it say? It says, exchange the glory, do you see that word? The same word, the glory of the immortal God for what? Images, idols, resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Right? When they were Once they were wise, but they became fools. And the idea of foolishness, folly, is not worshiping God. You exchange the glory of God for these man-made images. To uh, help us understand more clearly, uh, Tim Keller says it this way, what anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness happiness and self-worth. It is essentially an idol, something you are actually worshiping. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give uh, give you, what only God can give you. So when you say and pray, God, if you give me this, then I will be happy. God, if you give me this, then I will have meaning in my life. If you give me this, then I will have joy. Whatever that thing is that you're hoping and praying that God would give you that, that is your idol. And that's how you start to realize that it's not what you worship. It's not whether or not you worship. It's what you worship. And so in this, it's very clear. Two things look alike, sound alike, smell similarly, seem like worthwhile endeavors to pursue God and to do other things and pursue that. They seem like worthy options. And what this text is saying is, no, one is clearly worthy and one is clearly not worthy. And it's when you you pursue that worthless idol, you start to realize that's when your joy is fleeting. Right. We, we feel empty. You and I, we feel empty because we pursue after these worthless idols. Isn't that your experience? I mean, how many times have you gone out to that experience and you're thinking, oh, this night, it's going to be a great night. And you have all the fun that you want. And it seems, quote unquote, glorious. It seems great. It seems grand. And how many times have we done that and we come home feeling even emptier than before, more isolated than before, struggling more than ever before, that morning feeling like you are so alone. And that's the idea. That's what he has come to realize. You continue to think, oh, this is going to be it, this is going to be it, this is going to be it. And then you realize after some time, none of these things will ever satisfy. It is only God. Uh, Ravi Zacharias, I love how he puts it in one story that he shares, or one Uh, metaphor that he shares. He shares joy is like pursuing the sun. The sun is not joy, but as you pursue the sun, right, and you see that shadow behind you, that shadow is joy. So as you pursue the sun, the shadow becomes greater, and that shadow being joy. But if you turn around and you pursue that shadow, you pursue that joy, what do you do? At the end of the day, you end up walking away from the sun, and at the end of it, there is no shadow, there is no joy. That's exactly what he's talking about. That's a problem of earthly joy. Yes, in the moment, it tastes good. But eventually, it's fleeting, because it has no weight. It has no bearing on your life. The reason it flees from your life is because after some time, there's other concerns. But after just time, that weight disappears, that joy disappears because it's light, it's not weighty. So he he shows us very clearly from the very beginning why we should sing, that God is worthy and everything else is worthless. But then I want you to see this and you have to see this, The paradox of heavenly joy. And as maybe a a skeptic, uh, maybe as someone who's just curious, or even as a committed believer, if you don't understand the way in which heavenly joy works, sometimes it will seem like not such a worthwhile, fun, enjoyable thing but you have to be able to be, uh, be mature enough to be able to see past that because here what we see is a paradox. And there's two things that we see. One is the paradox of intimacy. What do I mean by that? It's, this, it's how heavenly joy, the way that we receive it, it's this paradox of intimacy. Because as you read this, uh, the, these verses, you would think it's high and lofty, right? In verse one, it says, Sing, oh." Uh, sing uh, to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, right? You see, sing to the Lord, bless His name from day to day. Verse 4, how great is the Lord, right? Greatly to be praised. He is feared to be, He is uh, feared above all gods. The Lord made the heavens. It's His great lofty language. But the reason He sings and speaks about such lofty things is because of the intimacy that he has had with the Lord. And you see it right, in verse 2. Sing, why sing? Bless his name, why? Tell of his salvation. That there was a moment for this person when God came near. He saw God. God became his salvation. God saved him, forgave him, right? Rescued him. And so he speaks about such lofty things because of intimate moments. It's this paradox. When you see such, such godly men and women, what you have to understand is not just how they view our Lord and how great and holy he is, but the intimacy that they have with him. Right? In verse 2 of his salvation, verse 3, what does he say? Declare the glory of his marvelous works, plural, that he has seen God work in many, many ways. The idea of it is heaven coming down, the high coming down to the low. We see this in verse 7, right? Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. This idea of all people, but yet families. And that's God. God. He is grand but yet personal. and you have to always be able to see that. He's not just holy and distant, he is holy and near. That idea is a high coming low. Ascribe the Lord uh, glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord, glory do His name. And you start to understand what he's talking about all the more when you understand the word glory. See, for us, we think about glory as renown, right? It's like fame, right? It's, it's this glorious moment. It's this, it's this wonderful moment. But in Scripture, often when it talks about the glory of God, it's the it's holiness of God made manifest. It's localized. That's the glory of God. In Exodus 16, when it talks about the Lord providing them uh, manna, It says, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, right? He's going to provide this this manna, this bread, and in the morning you shall see what? The glory of the Lord. It's this idea that it's it's their need, and, and the high has come low to show that He is present. And that's the glory of the Lord. It's the greatness of God, the grandeur of God, localized, personalized, it's intimate. Again, we see it in Leviticus, Leviticus 9:23:24. And Moses and Aaron went to the tent of, of, of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. It's this idea that the glory of God is now made manifest. That's the glory of God. It's the holiness holiness of God localized. It is grand. but The glory of God, whenever it's talked about in Scripture, it's always near. And that's when you realize that's what this person has. It's this intimacy. It's this high God who has come low. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this, his struggle with understanding this idea of the, this paradox of God's intimacy. And so when he would read different Christian authors, he would read about God's glory and fame. And he always wondered, is that really what's talking about of God's glory? It's about this idea of God's renown, right? His, his, his rapport amongst people. And he realized at that moment, when he was reading uh, this verse, Uh, in scripture, of the words of Christ telling his servants, at the end of it all, you will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. It was in that he was meditating on it, and it just broke him and humbled him. And he thought, what a glorious moment that would be to hear our Lord tell him, C.S. Lewis, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's when it dawned on him. That's glory. When all these other authors, we're not talking about fame and renown. He's saying, yes, that's true. But what is that fame? What is that renown? It is when God acknowledges you. When God is mindful of you. When that becomes your reality, that's a glorious moment. And he thought about it in life. That's the the little bits of glory that we taste here on earth. It's when a child receives an acknowledgment from a parent. Lewis says it this way, Nothing is so obvious in a child, not in a conceited child, but in a good child, as its great and undisguised undis- un- uh, pleasure in being praised. Right? And he talks about how animals, right, his horse or his dog, whenever he, he pets and, and, and just uh, adores uh, this, this animal, how this, this animal, this beast, he, he calls it, uh, glories in that moment right it's that idea of a, of a student uh, being um, applauded right by the mentors and good job and it's that moment it's this glorious moment that they that they long for it's when a child receives that from a father it's when creation receives that from our creator and that's what this psalmist is experiencing the grandeur of God, localized, personalized. He is now experiencing this. At the same time, this is also why, for many of us, we have our, our memories of childhood are so negative because we have experienced the opposite of this, right? Because we have, for many of us, have many moments when our parents just showered us with love, with good job, right? I think about uh, my childhood and my parents' Loved me well, but one of the things that I always craved for, and many of you uh, may have experienced this, especially in Asian culture, where it seems like we never are able to fully follow that that bar that to, ma- to match that standard. And so, I remember one time, my parents worked uh, from about 6 a.m. till about 8 p.m. So I was never like with them until dinner, and I would do the dishes, and they'd be sleeping by the time I was done, right? That's what life was like. And... Uh, Around uh, seventh grade, uh, my dad enrolled me into uh, this tennis uh, club uh, so that I can play tennis and get good and probably become rich and all of that. Didn't do that. Sorry, Dad. But the idea was uh, that I would, yeah, get good at this sport because he played a little bit in his younger days. And so after about three or four years of, of these lessons, I got pretty good. You know, I was able to hold my own on the tennis court. And so I wanted to show my dad. And so I told him, like, Dad, just, just come home. Like, just one day, just a little bit early before the sun, you know, goes down. We'll play. I just want to show you how good I've gotten. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, one day, he was finally able to take a break from his day. And he comes home around, probably like around 5 or 6 p.m. And then, you know, we're playing. And I'm showing him everything I could do, right? Like, the top spin, the back spin, all of that. I'm showing him everything. And all I wanted to, all, all I wanted to hear him say was, oh son, you've gotten so good, like I'm so proud of you. But you know what he says? He says, you shouldn't be doing that yet, just work on the basics, you're not ready yet. Mm-hmm. Some are thinking like, like this anger. And that's the idea, how much we long for as children, as students, even as creation, for our father, right? for our, our mentor, our professor, right? for God to say, well done, Good and faithful servant. And you see, that is why this man is praising in this song. It is this glory of God, this glory of the, the, the glory of God, his holiness, his, his, his majesty, all of who he is coming down, being near to him, sensing God's approval, his presence. That's why he sings. And you think about Christianity, our faith. And you think, yes, God is is grand, but also realizing he has become personal and that tension for you to always hold. God has seen this man's needs. He has brought salvation to him. He has brought wondrous works to him. And in that, he's praising God for the little things. In your life, recognize when God provides. And then spend that moment thanking the Lord. Really thanking the Lord for the blessings of every day. Every day is gift, right? As the stench of death is all around us. As as the number of infections go up, the number of deaths go up. It is to be grateful for this day. To thank the Lord for His, His, His grace and mercy. That is the idea of it. When you see His wondrous works... Every day, your heart, no matter matter how hard it is, there is that foundation of joy. It's this paradox. The high has come low. But also, what you will see is that heavenly joy is paradoxically liberating. It's freeing. And you would never think, right? Okay, the more I follow God, the more I follow His ways, What it seems like, it's a constraint. It's these chains that you're putting on yourselves. But the idea is, as you follow God and His ways, as you're fully obedient, not half obedient, as you're fully obedient, there is a liberation of freedom. And that's what this man is saying. He is free. That's why he's so full of joy. He is free. He's able to love God, love his neighbor. How do we see this? In verse 10, it turns a little bit. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the Lord is established it shall never be moved. Talking about God's majesty, his ways, his rule, his wisdom. This is the principles on which this, this world has been founded. And it will never change, no matter how much society changes, that will never change. And it's on this premise that God reigns, His ways are always just and good, His wisdom is always there, His word is always present and eternal. It's this foundation and understanding that if you put yourself in submission to that, there's a freedom that you will experience. And that's what he's going to be talking about. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns, the world is established, it shall never be moved. And then it says he will judge the peoples with equity. And in this day and age, that word judgment is a no-no. It's the word most despised by our society. But I, I need you to see this. It is the judgment of God that brings about freedom because he is able to judge what is good and what is bad, but he's not simply holy. He is love. He is near. What he does is he judges and then saves. If he did not judge, he would not save. And that is why this man He's able to celebrate because it is in his judgment that there is freedom. And this man is able to celebrate. He is able to worship. So he talks about the the, the, the laws of the Lord. Who are, it's established the world, the societies of this world won't follow it. But once you submit yourself to these ways, that's when you find freedom. So he judges so that he can bring about freedom. And then in verse 11, that's exactly what we see, freedom. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar, and all that fills it. Let the field exult, and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. It's creation doing what it's supposed to do. It's subtle. Once you recognize what's going on, what the psalmist is saying is the seas are roaring, worshiping just by being themselves. Isn't it what it's saying? As the seas crash against the shore, against the rocks, the idea is it is doing what it's created to do. It is free to do what it's created to do. As the trees of the forest, as it stands majestic, the idea is by its standing, it is free to worship. And that's what this man has experienced. He's experienced God judging his, his shortcomings, his, 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 his errors, his ways, but then bringing, as he's mentioned, salvation. And that is why he glories in God's judgment. Because we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And it is only by Him judging and them being gracious that this man is able to even celebrate and glory in His judgment, which is what He does in verse 13. Before the Lord, for He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. Talking about His his coming, uh, potentially the first and second coming. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. And we see this even more clearly throughout, throughout the scriptures. This idea when God comes and judges, he also then frees, frees us to do what we're created to do. Isaiah 55, 12. It's this idea of all creation longing, right? For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in, in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into Singing. Because God has come, He has He has released you to be able to do this, right? You will go out, you will go forth, and you will sing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Romans tells us more more clearly: for all for for, for the for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself, what? Will be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom. Do you see that word? The freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's this freedom to enjoy his glory. It's this freedom to, to dwell in his presence. It's just freedom to worship, it's the freedom for the seas to roar, the fields to exalt, the trees to sing with joy because they have been redeemed, judged, and brought upon salvation. And that's what Romans is talking about. It's longing for that day. As Jesus is the first fruit who brought upon redemption for us all, for all who believe in Christ, we will be redeemed we will be truly set free. That's what it's talking about. We love this idea of freedom today. right? It's what America is all about, this idea of freedom. But it's not freedom to do whatever you want. Because then you're just a slave to your own narcissism, your pride. That's not freedom. And you know this. There's so many things that you do that you don't want to do. There's so many things that you don't do that you should do and you realize you're not truly in control of yourselves what is true freedom true freedom is doing what you want to be able to love people to love isn't that true isn't that what we all want we all want to love our neighbor. That's what we all want. That's what politics is all about. Creating a better world by loving our neighbor. That's what all politics are about. That's what all people are about. They want to see this in their world. But if we're honest with ourselves, we fall radically short as people of that standard. The idea of freedom is not doing whatever you want because then you're always a slave to your own pride right? your own narcissism your own selfishness. True freedom... Is really loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, strength, and letting His the, the glory of God dwell intimately within you. Right? No, no pride of of, of of obstruction, no hurdles, nothing like that. It's it's that humble heart of God dwelling in you, near you, and for you to love your neighbor. That's freedom. That's what we all want. You see. This whole psalm isn't just telling us how to do it, like how we get there. He's actually telling us how to do it by singing, by actually reading, reading, singing, praying this psalm. It actually is the key to, to understanding this joy because this idea of, of worship, learning the worship is where you, where is where you find true joy where heavenly joy is found. It's it's this idea of when you learn to sing, you learn to ascribe, you learn to declare. It's when you do that, that's what evangelism is. You're sharing with others about the goodness of God. It's when you learn to revel in God, to sit in His glory is where you find joy. That's why he says, sing three times. He tells you to ascribe of His greatness, of His glory, three times. It's this idea, this is actually how you find joy. You ever wonder why Christians sing so much more than all other faiths, all other religions? All other religions, compared to Christianity, Christianity has infinitely more, exponentially more uh, songs that they write than all other religions. Do you know why? It's pretty simple. It's because Christianity is the only religion founded on good news. All other religions, what does it say? You do good and be good, and maybe you'll earn salvation. Right? That's the the formula for all other religions. Christianity is God judged. We fall incredibly short. He's gracious. He provided a way. And we recognize that He has provided a way in Christ. And once we see the gift that God has given us, He has given us Himself, that is why we sing. But as we sing, as we worship, that is how joy is experienced. It's the paradox of intimacy. The high becomes low in the singing, in the worship, Right? It's the idea of him uh, making his way known to us. That's how it's, there's freedom here as well. He is free to worship because of God's work. It's the high becoming low, but it's in, in the singing, the low becomes high. Because God's goal is not simply to come down. But he ascended so to bring us back up in verse 6, we see that splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. What we see is the idea is that the goal is not for God to simply come low and meet us here. It's to bring us heavenward. That's what John Calvin talks about. The idea of worship is spiritual ascent. As we sing, as we worship, the act of it, we're brought from an earthly, lowly place to a higher place. That's what happens. That's the key to joy. And that is the freedom that he talks about, to be able to sing in your suffering, in your hard days. No one can take away that freedom. And so today, whatever you are going through, let's sing. Let's sing. And may as we sing, may God bring us heavenward. Let's pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening, and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.